Well, from the founding of our country till the present, there, there hasn't been a, a lengthier controversy or arguably a more heated uh, controversy that America ha has had to wrestle with more than the issue of race. In 1787, when the Constitution was written and ratified, there were, there were delegates, delegates who were strongly opposed to race-based chattel slavery. George Mason of Virginia spoke at length about the horrors of slavery and criticized slave owners, calling them petty tyrants. So the slave traders, he described, saying, from a lust of gain, embark on this nefarious traffic. Ultimately, the delegates who strongly opposed slavery realized that opposing it would make it impossible for the, the states to come together. So they worked out a compromise with the southern states, agreeing, among other things, that no law could be passed to ban the slave trade until 1808. Seventy years later, we had the Civil War fought over the, the issue of slavery, and then until Martin Luther King, Jim Crow laws, and the, the tragedy of, of lynching, the forced segregation in businesses and schools, and, and now even in our own day, the topic of racism is still very much at the forefront of the political and social scene of our nation. The issue of race in our nation is very much tied together with the issue of economics and wealth and poverty uh, in the South before the Civil War. War in the antebellum era, what motivated the, the southern states to justify this, the sin of slavery was their dependence on, on labor and largely agricultural uh, dependent economy. Today, racism, racism is also wrapped up with wealth and poverty. And one of the assumptions argued by many is that our nation's role in the, in the slavery of the past is the main driver of economic disparity in the present. And so this solution being offered and pushed and implemented throughout, throughout our country today, as we speak, are the answers and insights and conclusions of a, a legal, now kind of social theory called critical race theory. Well, what is critical race theory is the question. And there's a lot of kind of debate, and a lot of people say, well, you don't really understand it, and it's, it's written a lot of technical jargon, academic jargon, I think on purpose, and with a lot of innuendos and, and, and implications, uh, but its origins really are, are found in Marxism. Karl Marx uh, offered a view of a world that, that, proposed a history of a, 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 that proposed a history of society that was made up of two classes of people, the oppressor and the oppressed. And he saw history playing out as a great conflict between the oppressors, those at the, the top of the economy, and the oppressed, those at the bottom of the economy. And his solution to this class struggle was the tearing down of all authoritative structures and institutions. All must be destroyed. And once all authority has been dismantled, a globalized, classless society could take its place as the new world order. Not until then would there be class, uh, not until there are no class divisions, uh, diversity or a hierarchical system of authority would society ever be free of this oppression. Karl Marx also hated God and the world God had made. He wanted to wipe out every trace of God from society, which meant for him the elimination of the family, the church, and the state. And it's this theory by Karl Marx that sits at the cornerstone of crit critical race theory. Critical race theory also draws from the wealth of the well of, of black liberation theology. And James Cone, specifically, who is widely considered the founder of, of BLT, 
Black Liberation Theology. His last book before he died in 2018, titled The Cross and the Lynching Tree, is a is surprisingly and sadly recommended by many professing evangelicals. And in the book, like all of his other works, James Cone rejects the cross as the means of salvation for sinners. He explicitly, unabashedly uh, denies the doctrine of substitutionary atonement because he was afraid that it would make people numb uh, uh, to the suffering of racial injustice. And the hermeneutic uh, Cone used to interpret the Bible uh, was, was, was rejected, was rejecting doctrines he, he, he deemed, quote-unquote, white and accepting doctrines he considered black. He interpreted the Bible and Christianity through the lens of, 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 the, of the black freedom struggle. Jesus' death on the cross was the supreme identification with the oppressed. Freedom for, for James Cone could only be in the present, and it was, it was just a socio-political salvation, not a salvation from sin and hell. He said in another work, the God of the, the oppressed, he said this, there is no truth about Yahweh unless it is the truth of freedom as that event is revealed in the oppressed people's struggle for justice in this world. Elsewhere in the same work he writes, there is no knowledge of Yahweh except through God's political activity on behalf of the weak and helpless of the land. And so critical race theory, uh, many uh, uh, believe and argue, and I, I do as well, is, is primarily built on the, the cornerstone of Marxism and on the foundation of black liberation theology, uh, I'm sure fueled by really good intentions. But in summary, critical race theory, um, as we get to the actual theory itself, what it, what it dogmatically uh, promotes is this idea that all of American society has been intentionally designed and constructed to suppress people of color, and for that matter, to suppress all marginalized groups like women, queers, and transgender, transgender people. And so the, they would contend that the racism uh, of race-based chattel slavery and, and Jim Crow laws of early America still continue in the same measure only in less overt ways. Dominant, dominant oppressor groups like men, whites, the rich, heterosexuals subjugate oppressed groups, women, people of color, the poor, LGBTQ plus individuals, not primarily through physical violence, but through the ability of dominant groups to impose their values, norms, and expectations on the culture. And that means, as a remedy for this, everything has to go. Judeo-Christian ethics and values has to go because they are the main intellectual, emotional, and spiritual tools of the oppressor. Traditional family structures like a husband and wife and children have to be torn down because the Bible's view of the family is the cornerstone of this, of this oppressive system. And so the way we do school, the way we understand justice and crime, the way we do church, the way we approach business, a free market economy, all of that must be actively overturned. And because of that, uh, critical race theory and its proponents contend that to be an anti-racist is no longer uh, being color, color blind and judging people by the content of their character. No, for, for, for white people, you must admit you're a racist even though you don't think you are, and then you have to actively overturn Western values 
and traditional Western institutions by any means necessary. And what is so alluring about these philosophies and theories is that they are partly true. The rich do often take advantage of the poor. The strong often do oppress the weak. In varying degrees, majority cultures throughout time and history do not treat the local minority cultures very well. Husbands do often mistreat their wives. In Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, he records the, uh, the American church's role in supporting chattel slavery. And, and while he presents only half the picture, half the picture is still a lot of the picture. See, we live in a, in a fallen, divided world. We, we are divided by color and nationality and economics, social position, gender and age. And, and, and James's answer today to the division we find in the world is this. Don't bring that into the church. That the church doesn't need that division, those problems, and we don't need the world's solutions to those problems. The church has a solution. And so, if you open your Bibles to James 2, let me, let me read verses 1 through 13 as we kind of go through this text together. James 2, verses 1 through 13. James writes this, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there also comes in a, in, in a, a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you into court? Do they not blast the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, being convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How do Christians respond to the racial, political, and sociological chaos of our culture? And James says that it is by pursuing a, a wholehearted Christianity and becoming a wholehearted Christian. And in this text specifically, James tells us that if our hearts are divided, we are also going to divide people into artificial groups and we'll, we will put them into sinful categories of thinking. And so in verses 1 through 7, James rebukes the church for dis discriminating against the poor, which, which brings us to our first, our first point of the morning found in verses 1 through 7, 
All forms of discrimination are the result of sinful partiality. The the main point of today's text and sermon is found in verse 1. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. The sin that James is addressing among his readers is the sin of personal favoritism or partiality, as some of your Bible versions read. It is to say that that personal favoritism, partiality, it is defined by when, when people make judgments about others based on external appearances. Partiality or personal favoritism means that you base your treatment of somebody or your attitude towards someone else on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. And the word here for personal favoritism is one word in the Greek. It's in the plural, which makes the prohibition include a wide range of application. In other words, we are not to make decisions about people based on any external factor, whether it be age or color of skin or socioeconomic class or your general physical appearance. The attitude of of partiality or personal favoritism is incompatible with, verse 1, faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. They don't mix. They don't go together. You put the two into the recipe and you'll produce a disaster. Don't let the fallen values of the world divide your heart already filled with faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let the sinfulness of a divided society make inroads into the society of the Holy Church. Because the church must always be a united church. One church a whole church without division, a body with members working together in harmony to serve one another. Ephesians 4, 3 through 6 calls every member of the church to, with diligence, quote, keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then Paul says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. all. This is a call for Trinitarian oneness. He says one spirit, one Lord, one Father. And the combination of of here in in verse 1, this combination of of the words glorious and, and, and the the expression the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1, is it's a very unique combination of words. Uh, you don't find this anywhere in Scripture. You don't see this same sequence. And, and James is making a practical point with respect to the specific situation that he's addressing. He says when we treat certain people within the church better than other people within the church, based on external differences, we are, we, are, we are attributing glory to people when we should only be attributing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we uh, uh, display partiality, we are stealing Christ's glory when we glorify certain kinds of people over other kinds of people. In the Annabellum South, a good number of churches and Christians 
defended and promoted an institution they should have opposed. But it wasn't the gospel making things worse. It wasn't the church making society around her more a, a, a more sinful society. It was the church following the world instead of with whole hearts holding their faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's what James says here. He says the more worldly, the more secular the church is, the more classes and categories of people divide the way we see and treat each other. On the other hand, the more, the more wholehearted for Christ a church is, the more one and united a church becomes. And this is what James wants from us. In verses 2-4, through four, James now gives an example of the favoritism he has condemned in verse 1. This example may have been an actual one or it may have been a hypothetical example of the kind of hard attitude he warns against. And the example that James shows is that that he is particularly warning the church of is, is of, of personal favoritism toward the rich and partiality against the poor. In verse 2, James draws two pictures of two different kind of men. The first person is a rich man wearing a gold ring. Verse 2, if a man comes into your assembly with a, with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes... A gold ring was an emblem, we believe, of the upper-class Roman equestrian class. Even today in Rome, there are shops where expensive rings can be rented for special occasions. Like we kind of rent a tuxedo to go to a fancy place in Rome. You can, you can rent a, a, big, a big gold ring for yourself. The second picture James draws is, a, is of a poor man. Verse 2, there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And the word for dirty is the, is the same word James used for filthiness in chapter 1, verse 21, when he said we should lay aside all filthiness. And, and so this man with the gold ring and bright clothes shouts out, what, it, what, is it, what does it communicate? It says, hey, everybody, this person is a winner. This person is somebody you, you need to pay attention to. But on the other hand, the man wearing rags, mismatched, stained, smelly, it declares to other, this person is, is a human trash. He is of no value to people in worldly terms. And, and since here in this, in this situation you have to direct them to a seat, they, they, they may, these two people, may be two new converts. And so to the rich man wearing Gucci leather shoes and he has a Dolce Gabbana jacket, verse 3 says, you pay special, you pay special attention to the one who was wearing the bright clothes. And, and you say, you sit here in, in a good place. This person you, you look with favor, you have regard for, you welcome with a big smile, you're affectionate and kind, you treat this man with a Rolex watch with honor and reverence, and, but as you turn to the poor man, he's wearing a, a ripped denim shirt from Costco, you know, he's wearing raggedy jeans from the Walmart grocery section, and you tell him, you say, hey, you, 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 you sit over here. You uh, you stand. You stand. You don't even you don't even get to sit in a good place. You stand over there, or or maybe you don't even give them a, a seat. There's no smile, no warm welcome, and, and you tell him, verse three, sit down by my by my footstool. 
We have synagogues dug from the second or third century that have stone benches running along the walls. And with those stone benches, there's a lower tier for the feet of those sitting on that bench. And back then, you, you wore sandals, you didn't have socks, and your feet were dirty, they were smelly all the time. So to the poor man, you're basically telling him, you can sit down next to all these people's dirty, smelly feet. I mean, there's no respect, no honor given to the poor man. This is a, an expression of derision and contempt for his state of poverty. And, and James says in verse Four, that when you do that, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Have you not made distinctions? The same Greek word for distinctions was found in chapter 1, verse 6, when James says that when we ask God for wisdom and trials, we must act, ask in faith. He used, he used the word doubting nothing. That's the same word there, doubting. And I said then that this I, this word has the idea of distinguishing or a division within yourself. James in chapter 1, he opened up that chapter saying that if you pray with this division within yourself, with a divided heart, do not expect God to answer your prayers. And James here in verse 4 in chapter 2, he picks up on that idea of this person with a divided heart, and the way a person with a divided heart manifests itself is by dividing up people according to these, these worldly categories. See, discrimination in the church is a manifestation of a divided heart toward God. And that consistent Christian conduct can only come from a consistent Christian heart and mind. When you show personal favoritism towards saints within the church based on worldly categories, you're displaying this divided heart. And James says it's even worse that you have become, verse 4, judges with evil thoughts. There's only one judge in the universe, and his name is God. And he's saying that you've taken on the role of God, but you haven't even taken off the role of God, you, because, because God doesn't even discriminate on the standards that you are. He doesn't use those kind of categories. You've become judges with evil thoughts. And Proverbs 28, 21 says, to show partiality is not good. That's not a good thing. There's only one standard by which God exercises partiality toward and that standard is faith in Christ, verse 5. Listen, verse 5, my beloved brothers. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? See, God's standard for who he accepts isn't wealth, it is not social position, and it is not your education or the color of your skin, it revolves around a person's object of worship. And furthermore, the majority of people that God saves are not usually the cream of the crop of society's elite. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, 
God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And, and God has cho chosen the weak things of the world to sh shame the things which are strong. And the, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he, may he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. Most of the people God saves are just normal, run-of-the-mill Joe Schmoes in this sanctuary. None of us here are famous. There are no senators here. There are no judges. We have no movie stars or professional athletes. Uh, in America, this is much of the church. On the other hand, the houses around us are, are million-dollar homes, and most of them who live in those houses do not go to church. Every Sunday morning, I, as I drive in, and they're jogging around the block, they're sleeping in, they're working in the backyard, uh, and they're doing everything but worshiping God. See, back then, uh, James says, uh, you have dishonored the poor man. Is it, the not, is it not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you, in, drag you into court? See, in that time, in, in that age, in that, in that, in that region, the, the rich often threw the poor into court for some unpaid debt with some exorbitant, exorbitant uh, uh, amount of interest, and, uh, and there would be a small group of wealthy landlord, lo, landowners who would think of ways to force the poor off the land. And so the, the rich got richer and the poor became poorer. You see, when persecution comes to the church in America, it, it won't be the poor who lead the charge. It will be the rich and the powerful. It will be powerful mayors and governors. It will be wealthy lawyers and educated judges. You see, plumbers and baristas, they won't be taking you to court. They won't be throwing you into pr prison. Construction workers and mailmen, they won't be the ones trying to get you to be quiet about, this, about sin and the gospel. It will be your CEOs who fire you from your jobs. It will be Hollywood actors and millionaire directors making movies about how bad and evil the church is. See, by treating the poor this way in verses 2 and 4, James's readers, they were, they were treating the, these poor Christians the same way the world was. Verse 7, do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? See, in the same way the, the world was blaspheming Christ's name by oppressing Christ's people in courts, Christ's own church was blaspheming their Savior's name by judging Christ's own blood-bought people according to worldly standards. Many elderly people, many senior citizens, they choose to go to dying churches with other elderly folk because younger saints do not treat them very well. We often mimic the world by the, by the way we ignore our senior brothers and sisters in the faith. We treat these great saints by the way we ignore them. We, 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 they're invisible to us many times. We've had older saints come in here and, and nobody talks to them. We are not to dishonor them by our indifference. There are many single mothers who are rich in faith before they got married, during their marriages, and after their marriages when their cheating husbands refuse to repent. We are not to judge them with evil thoughts. Often their faith is 
ten times stronger than yours. Don't look down on them. Honor them with their honor them for their godliness and heart of persevering faith. Proverbs 28 says, to show partiality is not good. We had a high school high schooler there who would come almost every Sunday, and he still comes once in a while. And why doesn't anybody talk to him? You to show partiality is not good. See, we are more fundamentally, fundamentally alike than we are different. We are one human race made in the image of God, but we like to splice up humanity into as many boxes as we can, but we are, we are far more alike than we are different. See, this concept of race is, is not grounded in reality. It is, an, it is an, an invention of sinfully partial people. Ken Ham, the president of Answers in Genesis, he has shown that the so-called racial characteristics that people think are major differences like skin color, eye shape, are only, uh, are only 0.012% of human biological variations. We even all have the same skin color with, with varying presence of melanin. More melanin me means lighter skin color. Less melanin means darker skin color. Our, our physical differences between people groups, according to Ken Ham, are absolutely trivial. He writes this. No one really has red or yellow or black skin. We all have the same basic color, just different shades of it. We all share the same pigments. Our bodies just have different combinations of them. There's no such thing as whiteness. This idea of a monolithic white person is a myth, like, like Bigfoot, like the Loch Ness Monster. There are poor white people, there are rich white people, there are white people from England and Ireland and South Africa, there are white people from the South, and they're different from white people from California. There are white Democrats, there are white Republicans. There are Asians who are raised in dysfunctional homes, they join gangs at an early age, they go to prison for the rest of their lives. One of my Asian friends in seminary who God saved later, he was a former Crip gang member from Los Angeles. He was a, he was a shot caller in prison. There are many uh, black people who come from large black middle class to rich neighborhoods in Los Angeles. You have entire communities, blocks and blocks of million dollar homes, and they're all, all African American residents. I had a friend from college that he lived in one of those areas, and his, father, his mother was an assistant district attorney from Los Angeles. His father was an editor at, at Wall Street Journal, and we went to a party, and, and, and all, the, all the kids were uh, you know, African-Americans, and, and they're listening to what young people listen to, and he says, George, don't let the music fool you. All these kids are from prep schools. See, see, we don't want to put people in boxes according to ignorant worldly standards and then treat them accordingly. And, and that doesn't mean there, that there are certain sociological patterns among different cultures. But listen to me, human beings are so much deeper, they are so much more complex and nuanced and more unique than these patterns and traits. See, if I had a twin brother... Same parents, same racial makeup. We grew up in the same house and we lived in the same neighborhood. If he was not a believer, I would have far more in common with the 90-year-old person from Madagascar who couldn't speak English but who was rich in faith 
and an heir to the kingdom that I would have with my own twin brother. In our evangelical circles, we may not make poor saints sit by our smelly feet, but they're never on elder boards for some reason. They never sit on the board of directors for Christian colleges and schools. For, for some odd reason, the people at the top of these Christian circles and organizations also sit at the top of the world's ladder too. You see it all the time. Go to a thousand, two thousand member church and you ask yourself, is there not one godly man who is a teacher? Is there not one godly man in this 2,000 person church who is a construction worker? You can be ungodly in the church and be very successful in your career. And you can drive a cab, you can be a plumber, and also be very mature and have a depth of wisdom unknown to mankind. The standard of an elder to lead churches, according to 1 Timothy and Titus, is the description of godliness. There's not one quality listed that requires some, some level of worldly success and achievement. Yes, our character will affect our jobs, but godly character doesn't necessitate material fame according to the standards of the world. We have let too much of the pagan standards of success and measurement into the gates of Christendom. And it shows what? Believers have divided hearts. Too many believers have divided hearts. And this is what James is after in this book. Well, let's move to point number two. And point number one was that all forms of discrimination are the result of sinful partiality. And, and point number two is this, found in verses 8 through 13. All forms of discrimination are the result of a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. All forms of discrimination are the result of the failure to love your neighbor as yourself. In verses 5 through 7, James has argued that personal favoritism toward the rich at the expense of the poor is wrong because, number one, it contradicts the spiritual wealth of the poor, and number two, it doesn't make any sense because the rich are the very ones who persecute the church. It's not the poor. It wasn't homeless people who burned ministers at the stake in England. It was a powerful queen named Bloody Mary. But the kind of attention and the amount of space that James devotes in verses 8 through 13 suggests that his third argument against partiality is the most important one, and it's this. It violates the law of love. It violates the law of love. You see, all these critical theories on race, uh, what all these secular philosophies teach about the problem people have is that basically what is broken is something outside of you. If there's something broken inside of you, it's only broken because something is broken outside of you. But biblical Christianity says exactly the opposite. Christian theology says the problem is inside of you and salvation comes only from outside of you, from heaven, uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And only when you fix what's inside that comes outside of you from heaven, only then can real lasting change happen outside of you. 
So James sees a problem in the church and the church culture, a problem outside of them, and he addresses what is inside of them. He says the reason you're this way is because you're, you, you're sinning with the sin of personal favoritism and you're failing to love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 1 said, listen, you have a sinful attitude of personal favoritism. Verse 8 says the same thing, but more generally. Behind a partial spirit is an absence of love. Listen to me. We sinfully put people in artificial categories of identification because, listen, we do not want to take the time and effort to get to know individuals on a personal level. And when we don't want to do that, it's because we're being unloving. Slavery in our history was because men refused to love each other. It's not that hard to understand. Racism, discrimination, sexism, ageism are all the results of a breakdown of love. And the only solution for hearts unable to love people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. James says in verse 8, he says that if you are fulfilling, uses a synonym for Scripture, he calls a scripture, the royal law, and as, as we've seen uh, so far, he's uh, used a synonym for scripture in chapter 1, verse 18, the, the word of truth. He, he's used the phrase, the implanted word, in verse 21 of chapter 1. He's used uh, the synonym, perfect law, verse 25, the law of freedom, and, and now he uses the synonym, royal law. And the word, word royal is the same Greek word used in verse 5, translated kingdom. The kingdom that we're heirs of is the kingdom of Christ. So the, the royal law means it is, it is the law of the kingdom, the law of the king, the law of Christ as recorded in the New Testament. It is a higher righteousness than, than the Pharisees. And the fulfillment of all that Christ commands about how we treat each other is this love command. He says, if you are fulfilling the royal, uh, royal law, the law of the king, the law of Christ, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This love command stands at the heart of the New Testament. If you turn to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, The lawyer asked the teacher, asked the, asked the Lord Jesus, he said in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. The summary of the Old Testament the summary of the law, the summary of the New Testament is this command from a horizontal perspective to love your neighbor as yourself. In the Old, in the Old Testament, a neighbor meant in particular your, your fellow Israelite, but Jesus expanded that law. He raised the bar of love to, to include 
every person you might come in contact with, including foreigners like a Samaritan in Luke 10, including enemies, as he mentions in the Sermon on the Mount. And this command to love is especially true for people the world says you're better than. But people whom God says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, another way we can commit the sin of partiality is, is the kind of friendships that we choose to have and cultivate within the church. When we only choose to have close friendships in the church based on external factors instead of being attracted to people that, that we can either disciple or be discipled by for the purpose of building each, up, each other up in the faith, we mimic the world, we ape the world instead of being who we are in Christ. When we love each other and give as much deference for people with no worldly status as we do famous politicians, actors, or athletes, we are offering the world a solution to all of their problems of division and discrimination. The classless world people won through a communist revolution they can have in the church by trusting in Christ alone. In the church, we are to build a genuine counterculture in which the values of the kingdom of Christ rather than the values of the world are lived, lived out. And so when we fail to do that towards one another, James says in verse 9 that we have become transgressors. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin, being convicted by the law as transgressors. And then James, in verses 10 and 11, he justifies verse 9 by showing that the breaking of even one commandment incurs guilt for the law as a whole. Because some of these readers might have thought, you know what, you know, showing partiality toward the rich, it, it's not that bad. Um, I keep all the rest of the Ten Commandments, and this is really a minor offense, and, and and Jesus says, if you think like this, this is like somebody in verse 11 saying, he who said do not commit uh, um, adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit uh, adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So somebody murders somebody, but they say, you know what, I I'm not that bad, I've never committed adultery, that would be foolish. And in the same way to say, well, yeah, I, I make distinctions, I I treat people differently based on external factors. I'm not that bad. He says, no, you have become guilty of the entire law. You're a transgressor. This is a serious command. It is of the same magnitude as adultery. To fail to, other, to, fail to love other believers without discrimination is, is on the same level as murdering somebody. You are a total and complete transgressor when we treat people based on external factors. Verses 12 and 13, uh, these are most likely based on the words of Jesus in Matthew 5-7. When the Lord said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy and compassion is to reach out to somebody in need. Mercy gives others what the world doesn't think that person deserves because of, a, of the failure to meet some ungodly standard of worth or value. Mercy recognizes how a person might have been treated because of that sinful standard not met and listens and loves accordingly. 
James has already stressed to be a doer of the word. And now in verse 12, he says this. So speak and so act as to those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. The law of freedom is God's gift of a new heart that gives born-again sinners the new ability to obey God's word. That means if you fail to show mercy to others, it will prove you've never been given the freedom to obey Jesus' command to love. That law of freedom will judge you for your failure to love people who are not like you. One theologian says, love is the natural fruit and the necessary evidence of being justified by faith. Love is the kind of law that governs us when we are freed from condemnation by the blood and righteousness of Christ. And we will be judged under this law of liberty. If we, if we have not love, we will perish because there will be no evidence that we are born again and justified by faith. Verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. If you show no mercy... It's proof that you've received no mercy from God and therefore God's judgment of you will simply be the same treatment you've shown others all your life. His judgment will be merciless. But, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. The believer whose life is marked by mercy will triumph over justice. He or she will escape all the charges his sins deserve according to God's perfect justice because by showing mercy to others, his mercy is the genuine evidence of having received God's mercy. As we close, verse 8 says this again. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. When this royal law is lived out, marvelous things can happen. Ernest Gordon, in his book, Through the Valley of the Kwai, tells of a miraculous transformation that took place among the Allied prisoners in a Japanese concentration camp in 1943. The camp was a sea of mud and filth. There was grueling labor and brutal treatment by the guards. There was hardly any food and the law that pervaded the whole camp, was the law of the jungle, every man for himself. Twelve months later, however, the, the ground of the camp was cleared and clean. The bamboo bed slats had been debugged. Green bows had been used to rebuild the huts. And on Christmas morning, 2,000 men were at worship. What had happened? Well, during the year, a prisoner had shared his last crumb of food with another man who was also in desperate need before he died. This man who died and shared his last crumb of food, among his belongings they found a Bible. And some who witnessed this last act of love wondered, could, the, could that Bible be the secret of willingness to give sacrificially to others? And so one by one, the prisoners began to read it. And soon the Spirit of God began to grip their hearts and change their lives. In a period of, of less than 12 months, there was a a spiritual and moral revolution within the camp. The royal law had shown its power. See, we can tell the world that the gospel is the, is the only answer to all the division and discrimination out there, but if we don't prove it, that how we love each other in here, we have only ourselves to blame. They tell us 
our gospel, Lord. 